Data Masters is the go-to place for data enthusiasts. We speak with data leaders from around the world about data, analytics, and the emerging technologies and techniques data-savvy organizations are tapping into to gain a competitive advantage. Our experts also share their opinions and perspectives about the height and overhyped industry trends we may all be geeking out over. Join the Data Masters podcast with your host, Anthony Dayton, Data Products General Manager at Tamer. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Data Masters. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce Elena Alihashkina, a visionary leader and trailblazer in the data and analytics industry. Elena stands at the forefront of digital innovation with over 25 years of executive experience in data analytics at some of the most prestigious companies, including Roche, Danone, Johnson & Johnson, Nestle, and many more. Her remarkable journey through the ranks of Fortune 500 companies and her substantial influence as a global thought leader have garnered her many accolades, including being named among the Global Data Power Women for four consecutive years. Let's extend a warm and enthusiastic welcome to Elena. We're thrilled to have you joining us today on Data Masters. Thank you so much, Anthony. I'm so glad to be here. So I thought maybe we could start in a funny way with a question that I've often ended with, because I think it can kick us off in a conversation about AI. I've often asked guests on Data Masters their view on Gen AI, specifically whether Gen AI is overhyped or underhyped. So sometimes we have this conversation and somebody says, Gen AI is as big and important as the internet. It's as big as the internet. And other people say it's just a stochastic parrot. It doesn't mean or do anything value or interesting. Where do you stand on this debate? It's a wonderful debate, perhaps. So I always look from the people perspective, right? If we look back into the biggest changes, which have been happening going back in 2000, this is where the internet kicked off really big. So then we talk about like 2006, 2007, when... The smartphones came in place, that social networks were have been born. So then we have a digital transformation, the cloud built. So there are a lot of transformations have been happening in the last 20 years. It's interesting to kind of sort out where the AI belongs. Does it belong more into the cloud or it actually belongs more to something like a social? So if I'm looking from the consumer side, from the human side, then AI for me, it's actually much bigger transformation than the data lake mm. or the cloud. Because I mean, who of us have actually the data lake at home? Nobody has, right? Nobody has a cloud at home. Maybe I have, but general person don't, right? But we all use social. We all have smartphones. We all own each channel. We cannot live without it. So I do see that AI revolution is really something similar. Because all of us as consumers, we are really using AI. And we use it every single day. So we use Google Maps, as simple as it is, right? So we use it at home, we use it at work, one of the most popular tools for salespeople, for example. And it's impossible to stop something which influenced by a consumer. So in this case, I don't think it's hype. This is something which we need to learn more about and adjust 
the same as we have been learning about mobile, we have been learning about the social, and definitely companies and people have been taking like different approaches, right? So during the social revolution time, I was working for the Wall Street Journal Digital. So Wall Street Journal had been like the front of the change, and we put it like a mobile application really earlier, like having like one of the first applications basically. Social content wrote like so so earlier. As a data person, I actually missed this opportunity a little bit because I was looking at the data and the data did not tell me it's a big revolution. So I was really quite careful to put more effort from my side. I a little bit being like a late in the game, I would say, right? And I think the eye is the same way. So don't think about that it's hype because it's coming from consumer. So consumer has a power and we need to think about what is our role in the power of consumer. Right. And so I think we understand the AI phenomenon has a personal touch. And I think your point is well taken, because if I think about even just members of my family, extended family, how many of them have ChatGPT accounts or ChatGPT Pro accounts, and also if you simply look at the number of users of OpenAI's technology, I think it may be the fastest growing new rollout of technology ever. And yet the implication for this in the enterprise I think is causing people lots of challenges. And you've talked a little bit about this idea that executives and managers, data people will get together inside a company and want to brainstorm, okay, AI is happening. You know, it's important. What do we do for our business strategy for AI? And they have many ideas and yet very little of them actually turn into production deployments. You have a point of view about why that is. Why is it that we're not seeing companies, organizations able to harness the power of AI effectively? So maybe I think it'd be helpful to people if, if they understood that. Yes, yeah, so you actually said this. It's exactly the question why. Because what I see is happening in uh, numerous roundtables, discussions, brainstorming sessions, people by nature are solution people. So people come to the table to talk about solution. And the solution discussion takes most of the time. Right? So example of the solution discussion is focusing on certain applications, discussing how bad is our data, discussing, for example, if we need to hire another person to do Genesis AI. So for me, it's a solution. So I would recommend turning this into basically a little bit more imagination type of sessions and spending time on why. Why we even discussing AI. And what I would say that surprisingly, many companies gonna find really different thinking at the end. So I did this many, many times like a data and digital strategy development. When you have organization, let's say sales organization comes to you and they say, oh, we need to do much more smarter reporting, right? So when you take them through the why, at the end of the session, they say, oh, okay, this was not my request. It's not about reporting. There are some other problems we have to address. So I think these sessions are not successful because nobody discusses why. Mm. And the why question could come at the end. We actually don't need the right Find it. Or we already have something. So let's build more of it, right? 
but by nature, we all solution people. We jump into solution. Let's fix the data. Let's do something because everybody do it. So start from why. Start from what? Which is great advice. I would add something to that that I think is AI specific. So starting with why, connecting the work you do around AI to business strategy makes a ton of sense. The other piece of it that I think people forget is scale. And I think the disruptive piece of AI is it allows you to break a constraint on a business, which is a scale constraint. You mentioned this just as an example, you might have a sales organization and the challenge is getting more salespeople and more effective salespeople. Mm -hmm. Okay. So a why might be, we need more sales capacity and we need more effective salespeople. And then the disruptive thought is, well, what if you could have an infinite number of salespeople or certainly a thousand times more salespeople because you can use AI to break this scale constraints in this example, your sales organization. So I think one piece to add to your idea is starting with why, but then also removing the traditional constraints. Oh, we can't hire salespeople. We can't do that. We can't. There are only so many copywriters in the world. There's only so many, whatever, like break some of these logical scale constraints. Absolutely. I think you brought a really great point about scalability. So there are two most asked topics. People asking me about scalability. And the second one is actually people is asking roles and responsibilities, which kind of tie to scalability. And the third one is about adoption. Mm. And to be honest, all of these three topics are really connected. And for me, the way how I connect them, again, I connect to personality. And for personality, for me here is who is going to create the value? So the value is not going to be created if we're going to build another wonderful portal, data lake, or data product, right? So it comes into have imagination with this new salesperson or marketing person how the future is going to look like. So what, what I'm going to be doing in the future as a marketer and really, really try to put this picture. And then you can see what scalability means, what adoption means, right? Because as an example, uh, scalability could mean not that just the technical side, it could be the skill gap, right? So can we scale, can we scale the data skill across organization? Or for example, adoption is also could mean a lot of stuff, including personal perspective, because to be honest, uh, many people do not feel comfortable because people feel that you're going to replace me with the right, you're going to replace me with technology, right? And this for me is a big educational gap. Okay. So it's a big, really educational gap. This is why adoption is not honestly going. Another thing you've written about and talked about as a constraint on the system is the quality of data. And we know when it comes to AI and even jet AI, finding quality training data, quality input data is a really important part of making these models. You know, the risk associated with any AI project is around questions around bias or questions around hallucination or overfit models. And these are all really symptoms of poor quality training data or quality input data. And the traditional wisdom, the conventional wisdom around data quality is that you have to clean up your sources, go through and fix everything. But you have a contrarian view on this. And 
given the importance of the quality of data in the context of these AI strategies, what do you suggest to organizations on quality? So I have been getting so many, many times the suggestion, let's just uh, spend another two million to clean the source, right? And you can do it every single year, spend two million to clean the source. So the source is not the constant object. It is moving. It's moving every single day, right? So if we can imagine, let's say the sources, we go again with sales and marketing example, there are more channels, there are more customer types. We want to change the go-to-market model. So if you're going to start cleaning the source, you're going to be just spent 24 hours just cleaning. A road to nowhere. Exactly. And as soon as you clean, you're going to be ready and active. You definitely need to kind of, you know, rethink about what does it mean. And now the new architectural concepts, you almost don't even move the data from place to place. Mm-hmm. And it's something like, um, like you guys, like Taylor is doing, is actually ability to connect the data points, but actually physically they sit in different systems, right? So definitely the data quality could be done way better by using AI. So I think this is where AI can contribute to improvement of the data quality. But also I think the data quality side of could be a lot of automated basically. So technology can play the role to clean up the, the technical automations within the systems. So the, the people side, it's also becoming more like a self-clone type of system, right? So it's not necessary that you are now creating the catalog of your rules, which I think 95% of companies still do, mm-hmm. to be honest. I think there is only like 5% of companies who are thinking about that I can everything differently, right? So people still create their own based type of systems. And AI can help because AI is a self clone system. Another point you mentioned about the data being biased, mm-hmm. right? And of course, whatever data you bring to the system, this is the data you have. So if your source is biased source, then you're going to get the bias out of it, right? So the question is, can we use more synthetic type of data to augment? So again, AI can help to bring, to bring some you know, augmentation, and it could be done much, much easier. So as a data professional, I'm really excited how much AI can do for data management, because the data management itself probably going to be completely different in like the next like, five years. Yeah, and in particular, I hope. <laughs> that the data management is much easier. It's more inclusive, more people are participating in it, and we're not relying so heavily on highly skilled data engineers to do the work, but we can rely on the system, the AI, to do much of the work. Or there's another subtle point you make I want to draw out. The idea that you could spend $2 million a year cleaning up sources, yes, it's the cost Two million, but it's also the fact that you're essentially never done. It's yes. two million dollars a year forever, and this brings up this idea of a more agile approach to the data quality problem. You've been very much on the cutting edge of this concept of data products, an agile approach to managing data, thinking about treating them like a product and using traditional product management strategy. So maybe, so you talked about AI, it's very important. You talked about the importance of, of the quality of the data. Maybe we can talk a little bit about how data products fit into that. Maybe we could start with something really simple, like what's your definition of a data product? Since everyone seems to have their own definition. 
Thank you for this fantastic definition. Yesterday, in preparation of our conversation, I did a little bit of the search, like even from the, the Google search, looking at how many people are interested in this term and what are different definitions actually exist, right? So interesting news. So definitely over like five, five years, data product concept is growing significantly. Significantly. So basically, if we look like five years back, it's almost like a triple, maybe like five times more than it used to be. So then people start to think in this way. So as you mentioned Agile, what I'm seeing, people not honestly connecting Agile and product together. Mm. And this is the need for me, right? Mm. So going to definition, I'm always looking at the product as a consumer centricity. Mm -hmm. So for me, the data product is a consumer centric application. And this application can have different type of forms. So this could be analytical layer, it could be even CRM type of application, but it's really consumer centric and data rich. It could be AI product, because if we take something like a, like a Google map, it is a data product. So it's really consumer centric type of application. I also started kind of thinking, because right now we have two movements happening in parallel. So we have technology transformation is happening. And we have data transformation is happening. And so for me, two movements need to come more closely together. And this is where the data product is going to come really connected. Because if we take this salesperson for working out of application, so this application is not developed in a data product mind. And the data lake is not developed into application mind. So then the concept of IT and data transformation coming together under data product umbrella. So this is how I see it. And again, for me, the key differentiator is consumer centricity. Who is going to benefit? Who is going to make additional sale or do the great marketing or be delighted by something like Google Maps? So these are different type of consumers who are at front of the user the data. So I want to highlight something there because I think that's really important. This idea that the data product strategy starts from these consumption endpoints and these business problem solutions, as opposed to starting with sources and the conceit of trying to manage every source. And I'm old enough to remember the, in the late 80s, but certainly in the 90s, this idea that the solution to all of our problems is that we're going to get all of the data into one data warehouse and that that was going to solve the problem. Or even the conceit that operationally that we were going to solve the problem by getting all of the data into SAP or to some Oracle or whatever the operational application of your choice was. And your point, which I think is really important, is we're never going to solve the problem that way. Yes. And we therefore must start the conversation through the lens of how the data is being consumed and used. Is that a fair way of saying it? Exactly, absolutely. To, to your point, and uh, some cases which we, we have a chance of working together in the past, right? So if we take the salesperson for, let's say, now needs to deliver multiple products to the same customer, and before this was done by multiple salespeople, right? So then this is the problem. I now need to come to the customer and show the full portfolio of the products. So then you go from this and say, okay, how are we technically going to resolve it? Right? So what is required to get technically? But the end result 
is delivery of portfolio of products and getting sales, getting customers, getting customer, you know, company revenue. And some other cases, we want to be more profitable, right? So this is what we're going for, right? So I'm the person who is actually making finance team who is really working on our profitability. So how I can look across all products and all dimensions in a holistic way, which is my data product, to really drive profitability. So this is exactly going from the decision I want to make or action I want to make, or going back to solution and going back into data sources. Yeah, and the common theme you hear there is when you start with that business problem, the constraints to solving the problem is the data is stuck inside of us. And if I could, in your example, as a sales rep, understand my product portfolio across the different product lines, now I can deliver the cross-sell and upsell. Or if I can deliver profitability because I can review cost across the different business units, then so good. Now shift a little bit from a user perspective because the other half of the data product strategy really centers around I actually really like the way you framed it. You have these analytical use cases and these operational use cases. And typically these organizations are at odds or at minimum <laughs> benign and neglect. They don't know each other. But you view data products as a mechanism of cutting our fossils, or is that a fair way to yeah. Absolutely. I actually got criticized several months ago when I was leading the Chicago panel. And I wrote the point that I think operational staff and analytical staff, they have to come together because otherwise we're never going to get results and we're never going to be able to measure the result of our investments into data and technology. And then I got criticized by some data officers who said, no, no, it's not my job. My job is actually building the data lakes, building the governance and building analytical applications, right? But I see actually that there's no way around because AI is application and is a data product. So which means that we're going to see the convergence of technical application profile and the data analytical profile. And this conversion is probably going to be data product conversion. So you have the skills of application engineering, you have the skills of the data and thinking about this as the product, the data, and it's going to come together. So these are my yeah, so it's almost like this common language between these analytical use cases or analytical processes and these operational processes. And at some level, maybe that's the definition of a data product, which is this idea of cutting across. I think maybe this distinction between analytical and operational is something the industry's created because it serves its purpose as opposed to something that users care about if they go to solve problems. Yes, absolutely, definitely. And I honestly think this is also a really great opportunity for people to step up into the data product management roles. And I think this could be also a really great opportunity for business people to step up into this type of roles, mm -hmm. right? Because technical skill, I mean, AI writes a perfect book. I actually wrote a lot of code myself recently, so right. So actually you can do a lot of stuff, right? But what cannot be replaced, it cannot be replaced as two people market, right? And for example, if you are uh, marketer, if you salesperson, if you're manufacturing person, right? Considering thinking about your career in data product management 
could be interested in opportunity because this is where your skill of knowing the business with some understanding of the data management and the applications which you personally want to use could be really helpful. So let's pull on this for a second. So a data product manager, maybe yeah. let's step back for people who are listening, share how you define a data product manager. And then maybe also a little bit about, because I know you've stood up teams that yeah. have data product managers and are thinking about a data product strategy. Maybe share for those people who are listening, who are interested in building a data product strategy inside their organization, maybe some tips and tricks or ideas for how to enable, empower, train these data product managers. And so first, what is a data product? So we can, someone's got to write a job description. Yes. What do you write in that thing? Yes, and number two yes. is like, okay, now you've hired one. How do you make them successful? Absolutely. So definitely. So my first team, which I built it in data product management, was back in 2016, which is seven years ago. This was uh, Johnson Johnson. And this was the first time when, as a big technology organization, which um, JJ has really, really wonderful technology team, we started thinking about that the product mindset is really the way forward, right? And product mindset for applications, let's say like a CRM application, or maybe like Salesforce type of application, it's not as difficult as you think about like what is the data product mindset. So we spent quite a lot of time with my team defining, first of all, what is the product is? What are dimensions of the product, right? And it's not a surprise, it's really kind of similar to physical product, right? So if I'm a data product manager, I'm not working as a project. I have a product which I develop, I grow, I measure results, I know the cost of this product, I know who is buying it, and I'm delighting my customer. So these are just really generic type of descriptions, right? But basically, I need to have, as a data product manager, product mindset, which, again, the product and uh, let's take any product in a store, the same mindset. I don't have a product, I'm selling it, right? So the second is understand the life cycle of this product. You know, data products have really defined life cycles, mm-hmm. or you need to define them. And the third measure is what is the cost of my product? What is the value it creates? So I need to be really clear about. And I think the cost is actually quite a always tricky question because majority of current data management organizations, they are treated as a cost center, but not the value creator, mm-hmm. right? So this is where if you data product manager, you turn myself into like, what is my ROI? And you prioritize whatever the teacher you need to put in development of this product, which is going to get more money or going to get more engagement with our consumers, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a really different mentality. I'm not just creating the dashboard because I love doing it, but is the salesperson is going to pay me for this dashboard. So I think this has three dimensions, basically. And there are no predefined, I would say, roles to data product management. I did a lot of search and assessment recently. You're absolutely right. People are talking, for example, master data management, sometimes code as a, as a product management, right? So sometimes architecture code is a product management. For me, the role is about the consumer services. So this is the core of the data product management. 
which is a very different mindset because I think most data people approach the task as a technical task. It's about writing Python code or it's about scaling a data lake or it's about adding governance rules or something and not really thinking about the, to use your words, the consumer. And I love this idea of thinking about the users of your data product as paying for it. Now, at a practical level, in many organizations, they don't pay for it. Like, they just work together. But is there a way that you've seen organizations make that more front and center, make it feel like you're paying for it? Or how do you get people to think about it when they're not actually paying for it? So I think people are still paying. They just don't realize they pay. Because when people ask me, like, who pays for what, there is one being out. So we as a company, any company, we're making money and we're spending money. So everybody's going to pay at the end. And this is also the mindset shift that there is no free meal here. It comes out of the P&L and you have the choices where you can invest. So here is definitely like something like what I did for the course is, again, defining the product is the step number one. So when you define the product, who gets the value, who gets the benefits, what type of decisions I'm going to be making, you can quantify this. Mm -hmm. You can quantify this. Is it by incremental sales? So then I need to account for the cost of this product, which are giving me opportunity to create incremental sales, right? Is it the cost savings? I need to account for this. Mm -hmm. Because I, I saw like some cases I had is people are happier to get cost savings because of the data product but do not account for the cost of the data product, right? Mm -hmm. So you need to have a, the mindset set. It's the same as marketing people paying for advertising and you paying for the product which are helping you to deliver something incremental. Interestingly enough, many chief financial officers are rethinking how you put investments into technology and data. I see that there are less topics uh, is coming and more and more discussion that it needs to come out of business expense. So which means that first of all it does need to deliver value mm -hmm. and the reason behind the solutions are changing so quickly data products are kind of have to adjust because you have new channels, you have new customers that you're not able to capitalize. So the CapEx is not even the right investment mm -hmm. for building this business-focused solutions, which doesn't present a challenge. Because we can see that IT organizations, they're really more in a CapEx space. Business, they have their own stance, right? Now they have to come together and receive even investment strategy. Yeah, so it's much more operational OPEX. Than it's these. more operational OPEX. Yeah. So let's cast our eye to the future but not too far to the future for next year. So we're, we're on the cusp of the end of the year or heading into 2024, given your work and what you see. I'm curious if you could share some trends that you see impacting us in 2024. What changes next year as it relates to data and analytics and anything that you, that you care to comment on? Again, I'm looking from the threat as always from the side of the customer and business. So there are two threats which are going to continue. One is companies are challenged with profitability. And the second one that consumer is getting more and more empowered 
opportunities that this omnichannel engagement, digital is growing. The companies change targets to be more digital, but to big, big numbers. So some consumer companies who had maybe like three, five percent, um, the e-commerce target now is up to only five, six, five percent. Right? It's a big shift. So if you go back to the data and the eye, so this I think key problems to resolve. Right, so how you can build profitability, profitability up and how you can engage your customer and consumer in a different way, which is honestly going to be more omnichannel type of way. So again, you cannot come next year. This is I don't want to disappoint. You cannot come and say, give me a 50 million investment. I'm just going to spend on building another big <laughs> technology. So you really need to become kind of profit focused, right, and build products in this profitability area because it's actually quickly can show results and secure the next type of data tech investments. So consumer play engagement or customer play is probably much longer one, but definitely there are some low-hanging fruits as uh, having, for example, the view end-to-end view of consumer, like customer 360 or consumer 360. And this is where the mastering of data can help and having this data product basically that consumers assist, right? I don't think it's going to be easy here. This is my kind of thinking because again, the ability topic is not addressed and companies are going to continue looking how to deliver it, right? But at the same time, it's opportunity mm. because I do believe when um, such big challenges are happening, Yes, you can sit and wait until somebody is going to solve the problem, or you can be upfront and, uh, and looking for creative, innovative, low-cost solutions to solve the problem. So just to summarize, your view is the big trend for 2024 is that the data projects specifically, but probably more generally, need to be focused on delivering bottom-line profitable results over simply thinking about how to create big infrastructure investments with uncertain payouts going into the future. Yes, I agree. So I think some um, harmonization, I honestly don't like harmonization or the word harmonization because it sounds like really like infrastructural investment, Mm. but some um, harmonization in terms of building these data products is probably the good way to think about it. Mm -hmm. Right? Because you're basically trying to to look across applications and focus on delivering the value. So to say it a different way, if you can look across data silos, you're more likely to find solutions which deliver business value that's profitable. Because yes. these are untapped. These are untapped. And uh, surprisingly, that people think it's such a difficult exercise. It's so expensive. And that you need to spend so much time on infrastructure. I mean, forget about infrastructure. Spend time really defining the problem, right? So let's say your financial officer tells you, I want to improve profit by how many points, and then pull back and really see how this could be done. There are so many solutions which are cost efficient, which cost the fraction of the Samsung distribution. Good. Well, Elena, thank you so much for joining us on Data Masters. A fascinating conversation, starting with AI and Gen AI. So I think you have anchored yourself squarely in the camp of it's a big deal to how we think about the value of high quality data and specifically data that cuts across silos as a way to really take advantage of that. 
to using data products as a strategy for achieving that outcome. And the big trend for 2024 is making data projects profit, which is, I think, almost certainly right. So that's great. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Andre. So super excited. So let's roll our sleeves for 2024. Data Masters is brought to you by Tamer, the leader in data products. Visit tamer.com to learn how Tamer helps data teams quickly improve the quality and accuracy of their customer and company data. Be sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Tamer, thanks for listening.